Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. I'm afraid it's pollen season in the Northeast. I apologize for how I sound. Good news, though, both of this week's segments were recorded when I was back home and away from the flowering trees. First up, Merritt Oppenheim, along with Anne Umland and Nina Zimmer. My first guest, Natalie Dupache, is the co-curator of Merritt Oppenheim, My Exhibition, a retrospective that spans the Swiss artist's 1930s work in Paris, her engagements with surrealism, and her broad post-war synthesis of nouveau realism, pop, abstraction, and addresses of nature. The exhibition is at the Menil Collection in Houston through September 18th, before traveling to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It debuted at the Kunstmuseum Bern last fall. The Kunstmuseum Bern created a digitorial for the exhibition. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. And the exhibition is accompanied by a catalog published by MoMA. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for $27 to $45. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, a novel approach to African art and restitution questions at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. But first, Natalie Dupache, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa through August 8th, the dazzling new exhibition Persia, Ancient Iran and the Classical World, explores the artistic and cultural connections between ancient Iran, which was historically known as Persia, Greece, and Rome. Works on view include royal sculpture, spectacular luxury objects, religious images, and historical documents assembled from major museums in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. The exhibition also features an immersive film exploring the site and palaces of Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of Persia. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Don't miss out on being the first to view a movement in every direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Coming to the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth on April 1st, Focus, Jamal Cyrus. Houston-based artist Jamal Cyrus examines forgotten, ignored, or fragmentary accounts of Black American culture. He raises clear questions about official history, what is overlooked and why, and the biases held by those writing and interpreting it. Cyrus uses a range of materials, including musical equipment, food, plant life, and used clothing, but transforms them into densely layered objects that refer to Southern material culture. For this exhibition, which is on view through June 26th, Cyrus made new sculptures, drawings, and assemblages that center on what the artist calls sonic territory, the oral and musical landscape of a region, in this case, the Trinity River Basin. The new work specifically examines the contributions of Fort Worthian multiredist and composer Julius Hemphill. Exploring the area's landscapes, natural and man-made, Cyrus's site-specific exhibition dives into the poetic layers, histories, and mythologies comprising this large area bifurcated and shaped by the Trinity River. Jamal Cyrus at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, April 1st through June 26th. And we're back. Natalie Dupache, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. In 1936, when Merritt Oppenheim was 22 or 23 years old, she created the most famous artwork of her career and one of the icons of 20th century art. It's titled Object. It's the 
famous for covered cup, saucer, and spoon that's in the collection of your exhibition partner, the Museum of Modern Art. It's extremely unusual for an artist to create such a major and lasting work so early in his or her career. And I want to start by unpacking that a little bit. The first couple dozen objects in this show, the first object in this show dates to when Oppenheim was 16. So while object might seem like it comes out of stone cold nowhere, it doesn't quite. How did Oppenheim come to be making work at 16 and then making major work in her early 20s? So I guess the thing to say with Oppenheim's sort of early artistic development is that in 1932, in the summer, she moves to Paris to become an artist. She goes there with her parents' support, and there's a sort of great story about how she, when she is quite young, a teenager presents her father with a drawing that has itself become something of a kind of mythic or legendary artwork in her career in which she writes this absurdist mathematical equation, X equals, and then a drawing of an orange rabbit. And so in 1932, you know, with this absurdist and sort of almost surrealist sensibility already in her, already quite fixed in her mind is when she goes to Paris and in various ways becomes associated with, starts to exhibit with, and become personal friends with a lot of the artists associated with surrealism at that moment. And I think that one thing that we tried to make, you know, that we talked about a lot and something that we, that I tried to make clear in my catalog essay is how she was really making things happen for herself and really taking deliberate steps to cement this kind of association. She first meets Alberto Giacometti in a cafe, and from there, a lot more events unfurl. She begins exhibiting with the Surrealists. She signs her name to Surrealist tracts and statements. She's socializing with them. Her work is reproduced in Surrealist journals. And so all of this is brewing in the 19, early 1930s, in 33, 34, and 35. And then, yes, in early 1936, she creates the work now known as Object, the fur-covered teacup, saucer, and spoon that is first exhibited in Paris in May 1936. So before we jump into Object, you raised something uh, regarding Schoolgirl's Notebook that, that I wanted to address before we got to Object. Merritt Oppenheim is very funny very quickly. <laughs> a sense of humor that will run through the oeuvre is there when she is a teenager. Did she recognize her work as using humor to relentlessly clever and smart ends? Was her work found funny in the context of, or, or at least clever in the context of her Parisian circle? I think so. And I think that I'm so glad that you picked up on the humor because it really is a kind of through line of the show that starts, as you said, like already before she goes to Paris, already this sort of macabre sense of humor is there and it will continue to persist throughout her career into the post four years and until, you know, the mid 1980s. She has these funny 
ink drawings that she makes when she's just arrived in Paris in 32, 33 that have great titles like Why I Love My Shoes and I Am Justice with the Little Brick Skirt. And so I'm so glad you picked up on that sensibility. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure if it was really perceived as funny, witty, clever, droll in that moment, but it's definitely something that we, the other, the my co-curators and I talked about a lot was hoping that people would get that idea that it's very much present throughout the career. There's a, there's a 1931 drawing of four people being hung, you know, hanged. And there is a little boy or a little girl that appears to be asking one of them perhaps directions. And one of the people as he is hanging and, you know, dying, you know, is pointing the questioner in, in the proper direction or in a proper, you know, it's just, it's absurd, but it's also very funny. Sometimes the absurdity of surrealism is kind of grandiose and hyper serious. And here it is not. Yes. She has a sort of funny, lighthearted touch with it. Absolutely. So she has all that going on in 1936 when she makes object. Where does object come from and what is object about? Object comes from a story that has itself become kind of mythic or legendary uh, within sort of the anecdotes of surrealism. So the story goes that in early 1936, probably sometime in January, she is having tea with Pablo Picasso and Dora Mar at the Café de Flore in Paris. And they are, you know, meeting there just socially as friends. And she arrives wearing a bracelet of her own creation that is a metal bracelet covered with fur. She had been making for some time then these jewelry items for Elsa Schiaparelli. Italian designer. So she's made fur-covered rings, fur-covered bracelets, and she shows wearing this fur-covered bracelet. And Picasso and Dora Mar, according to this story, admire it, and they all start joking around that one could, in fact, cover anything with fur. And the suggestion is made that one could even cover, like, this teacup and saucer with fur. So they laugh, and nothing comes of it immediately. But sometime later, André Breton invites Merit Oppenheim to participate in an exhibition of surrealist objects. This will be the what it eventually is ca- called the Surrealist Exhibition of Objects that is held at the Gallery Charles Breton in May of 1936. And it's for that show that Oppenheim recalls that earlier conversation, goes out and buys a cheap porcelain teacup saucer and spoon and covers them with the scraps and bits of fur that she already has at home from having made these items of jewelry. And so the teacup is first exhibited at the Raton Gallery in May which is a show that is only on for a week. And it is displayed in this kind of glass-fronted cabinet on the bottom level, surrounded by other surrealist objects, including Picasso's absinthe glass and Marcel Duchamp's bottle rack and other, you know, sort of works of that, you know, that it sort of feels like are its friends. 
Later that spring, in June, it's shown at the International Surrealist Exhibition in London. And then in December, perhaps most famously for us now, it is first exhibited in the United States at MoMA at the exhibition called Fantastic Art Dada Surrealism. And this show travels around the United States. It goes to Philly, it goes to Boston, Minneapolis, San Francisco, and it's really in this tour that object, the teacup, totally explodes in the popular press. It's reproduced everywhere. There are cartoons of it that appear. And it is, you know, people think it's hilarious. People think it's disgusting. And it really kind of just you know, dominates popular imagination and comes to stand in for surrealism, you know, as a movement in the popular imagination already then in 1936-37. And that's, I think, a sort of, you know, position or an iconicity that it retains. It still sort of has that hold on the popular imagination. When we were organizing this show, it is it is quite common for me to say that I'm organizing a show of Merritt Oppenheim and someone says, I don't know who that is. And I say, you probably know about the teacup. And they say, oh, yes, I do know that. Of course I know that. <laughs> so it still has this you know, status, even among people who totally don't know anything about certainly her or surrealism or really art history in general. I think today it's easy to understand object as being psychosexual. There's also plenty of reason to believe that Oppenheim was well aware of that and was fully intentful. What, what is that reason? What is that kind of personal connection to psychology? I guess part of the answer is that Merritt Oppenheim's father was a medical doctor, but who was also friends with Carl Jung. And so she grew up in an atmosphere that was very much aware of and connected to Jungian psychoanalysis. So I certainly think that that kind of dimension, that sort of psychosexual dimension that is so present in object you know, came from that kind of, you know, formation that she had in that family. But it also, I think, you know, object can gain, can be sort of further illuminated by considering another artwork that she made that very same year, which is the tri-titled work, Ma Gouvernante, My Nurse, My Kindermädchen, which is also in a different way, you know, animated by ideas around femininity and women and bondage. This is an object, a three-dimensional sculptural object comprised of found materials. It's a pair of white high-heeled shoes that Oppenheim tied together with a piece of string or twine. She capped the heels with these frilly white kind of adornments, sort of like the thing you put on drumsticks when you're putting a chicken in the oven. And she arranged this on a silver platter. And it does look, when you look at it, just like a trust chicken. And I think that is very much, a, you know, obviously a willed association. And it's so it's funny, it's absurd, and it's also mounting a kind of commentary on the strictures of femininity. And I think for me, with the trilingual title, a specific kind of bourgeois femininity, you know, thinking of a household where English and French and German is spoken, it situates it in a kind of specific class context, too. 
And there are other objects that Oppenheim was making in the lead up to 36 in those couple years in Paris that signal that she was always interested in playing with materiality and was really invested in these years in the question of like what is an object and what can an object do and not all of those artworks survive a number of them have been lost but they exist in interviews that she gave and photographs from the time and so we can see that like many of her peer artist peers in the early mid 30s she's kind of like turning around and gnawing on this question of what an object can be or can do. We will, of course, have an image of my nurse on manpodcast.com. The one thing I would add to your marvelous description is that the kind of color of a roast chicken or, or a roast bird is even suggested by the soles of the high heels that are top down, if you will, which is full of other associations. It's just a relentlessly funny work, and despite it not being one one-hundredth as well-known as the fur teacup, it's the work y'all chose for the cover of, of the catalog. The exhibition features sculptures, and we've already talked about a couple of them, but also many paintings and many drawings. Is Oppenheim doing and addressing different subjects or themes in her paintings than she is in her sculptures? I think that in both, we see two through lines that for me really persist throughout the career. One is this interest in transformation. That's, I think, the really big one. We've already seen that operative in My Nurse, in the Furline Teacup, in Object, this idea of you know, transforming something that seems familiar into something spectacularly other in a way that is funny, subversive, you know, brings up all kinds of different associations. And that impulse and interest in transformation in general, I think certainly obtains in a number of her paintings as well, in sort of various ways. Like there are, I think, different chapters and different kinds of paintings throughout the career and we see so we see it in different ways in different moments but the other thing that is a real constant is this interest in material experimentation and so experimentation in general is certainly another you know through line of her paintings not just the three-dimensional objects one of the things that is so remarkable about Oppenheim was how relentlessly adventurous she was. She tried on new styles, new methods of making. She made artworks in dialogue with all kinds of different art schools or movements. Of course, surrealism is the most well-known of those, but also with numerous post-war art movements. And so I think that appetite for experimentation is just as present in the paintings as it is in the sculptures, although it's, you know, sort of takes on, obviously it looks different, right? But she's doing totally abstract painting in a certain set of years and then super narrative, you know, kind of illustrative, quote unquote, naturalistic-ish paintings in a different moment. And so that wide range is present in both, in both media or in all media in which she worked. Yeah, that's I, I, I like how you put that. 
as as you noted, it's in the it's in about the mid nineteen forties that Oppenheim seems to turn from working primarily representationally to embracing or working in abstract modes. And I'm thinking of a work such as Dead Moth from nineteen forty six, which, as somebody who's worked on Jay DeFeo before, you must have particularly enjoyed. Other paintings as well. There's a plaster freeze, I think it's fair to call, a, a, a plaster freeze titled Garibaldina from 1952. That's certainly abstract. Why the turn? I mean, she was she was working well and working funny and and clear, you know, plainly comfortable working in, in a certain mode, very often very representational and was willing to wander. Yeah, I think that this sort of late 30s and early 40s and all that happens within those years is quite, you know, there's a lot going on and it's quite complicated. I mean, you mean the war, I think, right? You mean yes, the war too. exactly. Mm -hmm. So in 1930, like late 36, 37, so in other words, just as the teacup is sort of taking off so spectacularly, she leaves Paris and returns to Switzerland because of World War, but sort of because of World War II. I guess I, maybe I can back up and say she leaves Paris and returns to Switzerland. Her parents had been supporting her through her you know, time in Paris and sending her money. And in 1936, her father, who has the Jewish last name Oppenheim, is forced to close his medical practice in Germany. And he and Oppenheim's mother go to Switzerland, to, to Basel. And so because the financial support dries out, Oppenheim leaves Paris and goes back to Basel. And for a few reasons, enrolls in art school for the first time. So she takes classes in painting and anatomy, and also quite interestingly in paint restoration at the trade school in Basel. And it's in this atmosphere that her paintings kind of take a different direction starting in like 37, 38. And she makes works that are narrative, kind of illustrative, and are very often inspired by or related to or riffing on fairy tales or folklore or myth or history. So there's one really fabulous work from this moment is called Daphne and Apollo. That's a riff on the Greek myth of Daphne and Apollo. In the traditional story, Daphne turns into a nymph, is turned into a tree in order to escape Apollo. In Oppenheim's painting, they are both transformed, and Apollo, the god of beauty, is a kind of brown potato-like figure that has these sort of moths or flies that seem to be spinning around him. So this is a sort of discrete, I think, period of work where she's making these mythological, narrative, fairy tale-like paintings. And she later talks about, you know, that she she still, I think in the 70s or 80s, she says that she still likes these paintings. They still please me, she says, but they didn't satisfy me. I wasn't content with them. She will also sometimes, in a, and she'll also call them romantic, anecdotal, illustrative. And so she really turns away from that kind of representation in her work, like you were saying, around the mid-1940s. And 
the 40s, later 40s and early 50s are years that have sometimes been or have often been referred to as her crisis years. And we know from the catalog raisonne that Oppenheim worked on throughout her life, that was published in German in 1982, that these were low years. She was not making a lot of work. But as you point out with Dead Moth, with Garibaldina, she was still making work. And she was also exhibiting and participating in theater productions. So it wasn't as though she was completely abstaining from the art world. And then she says that in 1954, she reemerges from this low period. She talks about knowing the exact hour that her crisis ends. And she takes a studio in Bern and starts working again. And importantly, I think starts really re-engaging with object making again. That I think is a kind of big, important signal of her full re-emergence and full re-engagement with art making. There's a work I'd like to bring up in that exact context. It is her 1959 sculpture, The Green Spectator. It is both a really cool object, but it is also an absolute callback to a drawing from that she made in 1933. Why is she interested in 1933 and 1959? And why did she want to manifest a drawing as a sculpture, which so far as I could find was not something she often reached into her back catalog to do? Yes. So I think that Oppenheim is, there are, there are several instances in which she does as you put it so well, reached into the back catalog. And it seems that she had, in fact, always imagined, I think, Green Spectator as being a three-dimensional object. So she has these drawings of it that she makes in 1933. She draws it from the front and from the side. So it does seem to be a kind of schematic rather than a sort of, you know, merely a standalone drawing that's exploring an idea and then is done. Like, it does seem to be preparatory in some way. She writes profile on one of the drawings. Yes, yes. And so I think it is significant that it's after this crisis has, crisis I sort of put in quotes, but after that moment has passed, when she has a studio again, and when she is sort of feeling fully return to her powers that she finally can realize it in three dimensions. And we didn't include it in the catalog for reasons that will be obvious, but she actually also realizes it as a public sculpture in the late 70s. So there is a, you know, many foot high kind of monumental green spectator that is situated outside the Lembrook Museum in Duisburg in Germany. And so this is an idea that Green Spectator in particular is a kind of concept that has, you know, appears punctuating her career at several key moments. One is in 1933 when she is a young artist and just sort of beginning to ideate that form. The other is in 1959 when she realizes it at around six feet tall after this moment of, you know, diminished production and when she's really re-engaging with the art world. And then in the late 1970s, when she makes it is when she's sort of arrived as an artist in a more major way on the international scene. And she makes it 
big and permanent, and it's a feature of the public park there. So Green Spectator is a really important work in her career. In the 1960s and 70s, and to be honest, I'm not sure I'd ever seen an Oppenheim, you know, in person, an Oppenheim from the 1960s and 70s before. Oppenheim learns to hold abstraction and representation together, both across the oeuvre from those decades, but also within individual works. I just voraciously ate them up when I saw them in the catalog. I mean, they were just new and out of nowhere to me. And they raised all kinds of questions, like her project here seems to be less specific and less consistent in its address than her her work had been in, say, the 30s and 40s. So as we get into these last couple decades of her career, and to be sure there is a, a unity across the objects in, in these last couple decades, they're, they're of a piece. How has her project changed and how have her interests changed? Yeah, I think that so one of the things that we see in the 1960s and 70s is that Oppenheim has long nurtured these parallel interests in enchantment on the one hand. We see that in the paintings that we talked about from the late 30s and early 40s, the Daphne and Apollos of her practice. And she's also long been interested in nature and the natural world, which has been evident also even in the early surrealist days. One of the first objects that she makes that is no longer in existence, that is now lost, is a work called Head of a Drowned Man Third State, which is a board that she saws into the shape of a face and paints blue and studs with almonds. And she makes it in Corona in the south of Switzerland in an environment that is really sort of suffused with, I don't know, it just is all about kind of nature in a way there. And so she's long had these parallel interests. And one thing that happens in the 60s and 70s is that they start to overlap and really tangle together. And we see this in particular in a work called Forest Interior with Dryads from 67, I think, where the title already sort of identifies those two strains or interests in her practice that there's, you know, this forest interior, the 70s are full of works that are sort of foresty and let bugs and birds abound in this moment, but it's a forest with dryas. So there's this kind of like interest in enchantment and personification that is really sort of coming up in, in those decades. And I think that part of why that happens has to do with the reception that she starts to get in the art world and that in 1967 she has her first major retrospective at the Moderna Musée in Stockholm which is an, a real occasion for her I think of looking back on her practice it is a true retrospective it includes very recent work but it also has the teacup and works from the her kind of surrealist days and so I think that, you know, as, as it is for many artists, this occasion of seeing all of her or much of her early work and current work reunited is a sort of stimulus or catalyst to think more deeply about some of those interests that have been persistent all the while, like this interest in enchantment and in nature and these kind of also through lines of 
transformation and material experimentation. So all of these ideas really combine and make the 1970s really one of her most productive decades where she's working quite feverishly and quite enthusiastically and is really engaged in her practice. That is a very good answer to a very bad, badly worded question. (laughs) (laughs) Natalie Dupeche, thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Izumu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Laura DeBecker joins me to discuss Wish You Were Here African Art at Restitution, an exhibition, mostly, at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. The show takes a unique approach to an examination of 11 objects from the museum's African collection. Instead of researching their provenance's relationship to the era of colonization in private, as most museums do it, 
UMA is conducting its research into these objects publicly and in near real time via a gallery exhibition. Both the exhibition and the website UMA has launched for the project are models of transparency. I think you'll find them really unusual and thought-provoking. We'll have a link to the website on manpodcast.com. De Becker is UMA's curator for African art and interim chief curator. She is assisted in the project by Timnut Gedar, Bridget Greyer, Caitlin Webster, and Ozi Aduma. Laura De Becker, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. This exhibition, which the museum describes as quote, an in-public investigation into 11 African works of art, does in public what almost all American museums do, if they do at all, behind closed doors. So before we kind of get into what's happening in the gallery, what is the project? The project is titled Wish You Were Here, and it's a year-long investigation into 11 artworks from our African art collection that I, throughout the years, had sort of set aside as potentially problematic in terms of what they are, where they came from, when they came to be at UMA, how they came to be at UMA. And problematic, I mean, in terms of questions of ethics, questions of ownership, questions of restitution and repatriation. And so we decided to do this investigation in public, in the gallery, Visitors can follow our progress on each of the case studies on the website and in the gallery itself and learn as we learn. So we're going to talk about how that works in the gallery in a moment. But before we get there, you know, this is something that American art museums like to do if they do it at all, quietly behind closed doors and issue a press release at the end of it. And, you know, there's no transparency or, or, or anything of the sort. So as you and the museum discussed how to do this, how did that conversation go internally? And how did you come to land on doing it in public, in a gallery space? Yeah, that's a really great question. And you're right, it is quite exceptional. Not not that the work is being done, but that it's being done in public. And for us, it was born out of necessity because I was working on a reinstallation of our permanent African gallery. And of course, one of the main benefits of working for an academic art museum is that you you constantly you are constantly in conversation with students so you very much have your finger on the pulse of what is on their minds and I learned that I I couldn't I couldn't create an exhibition of Af- of historical African art without the first question being raised from the student's point of view like why are these pieces in Ann Arbor are we even allowed to look at them are we even allowed to have them here what are we doing considering the ethics of display? And so I knew that I just had to grapple with the topic of restitution very deliberately, very intentionally in the reinstallation. Basically, that grew and grew into its own exhibition project. It ended up taking it out of the permanent gallery display because it sort of had to become its own investigation, which is the current exhibition. And the other were pragmatic and maybe even slightly cynical reason that we are doing this in public is that, and most curators will agree with this, is the treadmill of curation that we are constantly on, like always getting ready for the next show and really only having time to focus on works that will be going on display, never really finding the time to work on the rest of our collections that don't have immediate plans for display and exhibitions or the permanent gallery. And especially with works where I was concerned about their provenance, I just never found the time or the resources to really do do that kind of sleuthing, that real deep research that needed to happen. 
So I thought, well, if we turn it into an exhibition, which is really an investment of time and resources when you think about it, that is what an exhibition is, we can set aside, carve out that time and those resources and actually invest it in these 11 artworks and trying to trying to find some suggestions or resolutions for at least these 11 and maybe some recommendations for the other 1,789 works in our collection that we still will need to review as well. So let's talk about how you do that in, in physical space. You've split the gallery more or less into two. One part of the gallery addresses the issues at hand, if you will, and the other half of the gallery addresses the 11 works. So how have you represented the the issues at hand and what do you hope visitors, including, of course, students, come away from that presentation? So there's a couple of points that I really wanted to make in this exhibition. And one of them was, and this is why we focused on 11 works, is the unique of each piece and how each work has um, has its own intricacies, poses its own questions. For each work, we will need to contact different partners on the African continent and so on and so forth. So I wanted to get away from this notion that repatriation restitution is a, is a yes or no issue. And I especially wanted to make sure that students and visitors know walking out of this space, like, wow, this is pretty complicated. And this requires a lot of thought, time, and resources. So that was one point that I thought was very important. The second one was the history of the restitution debate. That was, again, based on both based on conversations with students, but also based on a presentation by the scholar Benedict Savoie, who very famously co-wrote the the report for French President Emmanuel Macron that made recommendations for restitution from France. I saw her speaking at Columbia. It was commissioned by Macron to write the report in 2017, I believe it was released. She actually found an old, an older report that had been published in the 60s in the archives. That was sort of one of the first things she found in her research. And she compared it to the same issues that climate change conversations go through. Like every five years, a new report is written, and then that report gets filed away, nothing changes. Five years later, a new president comes on board, commissions a new report, and, and so on and so forth. So I really wanted to ask this question. of Like, hey, if we've been talking about this since the mid-1800s, actively, and if we know that, especially in the 1960s with the independence of African nations, all of these conversations were as vibrant as they are right now, why haven't we made more headway on these issues? Where are we always getting stuck? So the, the space is designed that a timeline with the history of restitution wraps around the space. And then we have the 11 objects in the middle, which I had always sort of probably naively imagined that throughout the project, as we were potentially finding works that needed to be repatriated, that the space would sort of slowly empty out as we were sending works back. And then the other part of the timeline continues through the year that the exhibition is on display, and that then maps the research that we are doing for each individual piece. Maybe using one artwork as an example, could you 
talk us through how the investigation has gone and how it exists in the gallery? So we have one case study. This is probably a, lo- a large amount of this kind of work is also luck, as I'm sure all researchers will know. It's a um, is stumbling across the right archives, etc. And and so the, the example that I am about to share is is one of those. But I want to just say that with a caveat that this is the exception, not the rule by any means. But we contacted the widow of the person who had donated the works to the museum, and these were three so-called Benin bronzes, the ones that have been in the media the most, sort of the Parthenon marbles of African art history. This person. We contact his widow and she she writes me back and she's like, oh, oh, yeah, I actually still have this whole archive of my husband's that I'm wondering whether there's anything in there that you would find interesting. And so she sends me through the mail <laughs> these like two crates of paperwork that just turned out to be an incredible treasure trove where we learned that the head, this is the head of a king cast in brass, very famously from the Benin Kingdom, where we found out that that particular piece he actually purchased in a tourist store in New Orleans in the 80s and had actually done metal testing on it by a very famous African art historian, basically the expert in these kinds of materials. And that testing had clearly shown that these were more recent versions of of a historical tradition. So absolutely not part of the 1897 loot of the Benin Kingdom. So the conclusion there is then, okay, so we know it's not, we know that this work wasn't looted in 1897 because it's, it's too recent. The question then is, does that mean that it wasn't looted later? No, <laughs> how can we make sure of that? But what we then absolutely do know is that we have to stop talking about this work as if it's been in bronze. So we we learned a lot about our own work that we can now add to our database and change how we speak and write about it. So how do you show that discourse, material and otherwise, on the walls of a gallery? We show it very systematically, as in we show every phone call, every email, every conversation we have in, in our exploration. We show the, the dead ends, which there are a lot of. And in fact, when I gave a recent tour, one of the students' remarks was, is there an example without a dead ends at all? <laughs> have you found anything at all? It's always, of course, students who keep you on your toes. But of course, anyone who does research knows that dead ends are inevitable and that they are just simply something you have to deal with and work around where possible. It just happens. Absolutely. And and I think, again, this is why this is a type of show that it's very, even without the content of it, I think it's a, it's the, the model is very appropriate for academic art museums because this is what every student is being taught throughout their course at university. And then we share all kinds of archival materials we find along the way. So, for example, that metal analysis report that I just referred to, we, we had a, a copy made out of, and so it's displayed on the wall explaining what it is and what we found, etc. And one of your installation strategies, and a really clever one, is that as a viewer physically walks through the space and looks at this information, 
you've installed it in a way that it's kind of a, 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 a you know remember the old choose your own adventure books where you know as the viewer gets to an artwork you've made it easy for a viewer to follow that artwork and what's going on with it around the room how have you done that and and why did you decide to do it that way it started with the desire to show the history of restitution of the conversation and then it felt natural to continue that sort of linear timeline uh, progression. I like that you say choose your own adventure. I have been, again, maybe more cynically referring to it as the murder wall. I'd always sort of imagined it with the red, the red lines, the red ropes connecting all of the dots. <laughs> so it's really, it feels, it feels that way. It feels very much like when, when I was doing my own research as a student, that's how I would do it, like paste everything on a wall and then group things that make sense together. So it feels very organic. Again, this is something that museums are not good at, right? Like we submit our labels, our texts months in advance and they get designed and produced and there, there are uh, sketch-ups of, of our installations and every, we know where everything's going to go ahead of time. So to have an installation that expands and grows throughout its run is something that we are not trained to do. And so I've had to circumvent a lot of museum conventions to be able to, to do this. And a lot of them have entailed, for example, I bought an old typewriter so I could just <laughs> type my own labels. <laughs> true story, true story. So I just type my own labels whenever there's an update for the work and then just post it on the wall. So there are lots of reasons art museums, at least American art museums, are often uncomfortable with doing this kind of work, this kind of interrogation and investigation in private, let alone in public. And one of them, especially maybe in the last 15 years on the antiquities, the European antiquities side, has been a fear of I don't know, irking or annoying donors, donors who still have relationships with the museum. Was that a concern for you? And how have you navigated it? It was, I would say it was a consideration, not a concern. What we wanted to make sure of was that we alerted all living donors whose works are in the show that this was happening. We didn't want them to find out through any other means. So we contacted um, all living donors and everyone responded really positively when we explained what we were trying to do. Because the, what, is, what is quite fascinating in this story is we're really not finger wagging. We're not trying to, we are not saying that these collectors were intentionally collecting even though they knew that the provenance of these pieces was incomplete or was potentially problematic. It was actually quite the opposite is a lot of the collectors of that time were feeling like they were doing something very progressive, very radical by supporting the arts of Africa in these institutions that only showed European and American grades, right? So they actually felt like they were the ones who were diversifying the art historical narrative. So they, these are very often people who are very supportive of of expanding the canon and of, of, of thinking differently about art historical narratives. So they were actually very interested in the project after they learned 
what we were trying to do and how they were trying, how we were trying to do it, how we were involving students in the research, how we were really using it as a tool to elevate research and process. And they, and they ended up, as I mentioned with the example I just shared, they ended up sharing their archives or family photography of pieces of the pieces on display in their grandmother's living rooms, etc. They were very generous. So that's donors. Well, what about colleagues at other museums? So this project has been on view in Ann Arbor since August of 2021. How have your colleagues at other museums responded to your tackling this issue differently than pretty much anywhere else in the U.S.? I think with great interest, we are sharing our research updates on our website as well. Again, as we as we move through the research, so it gets updated pretty frequently. And I know that a lot of my colleagues are keeping a close eye on that timeline as it grows. They're also giving us feedback. So for example, one of my researchers mapped similar shrine figures as one of the pieces that is in the exhibition, similar shrine figures across the US and we had missed some and then colleagues reached out and said, hey, actually we have some too. So Again, like I think that there's a lot of interest and generosity because everyone is trying to grapple with this. There's also a movement in the field of African art history where there's a committee being convened to really think about this across the U.S. As, as again, like it's happening all over the world, of course. So I think there's mostly, I think people are seeing it as a really interesting experiment and they're looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. And that is, I think, the biggest challenge of this project is that I'm, I'm not sure what will be the outcome. And I won't be sure until the end of the run. And there's actually even some thinking at UMA that we might want to keep it open longer until we actually have some kind of resolution is the wrong word because these problems will never be resolved. But until we have some kind of temporary conclusion, let's say, in how we want to move forward with each case study, like until we've identified particular partners, know exactly what it is that they want from us, from these works, perhaps have restituted some of them, if appropriate, but we're not there yet. That prompts what was going to be my final question, and that is how at the outset of this project did you define the metrics of success? The metrics of success for me would be complicating the issue for everyone who's seen the exhibition, I would say. I think a lot of people have been exposed to the issue recently, a lot of young people. And, uh, you know, through Black Panther and through the Macron report and through just the media, there's a a story about repatriation almost every week uh, these days. And I just wanted to explain to everyone that when you take it, take that conversation out of the abstract realm and apply it to specific artworks in the collection, that it gets very complicated. And I wanted to make transparent what we mean by that when we say it gets very complicated. So my success would be if the young people who've seen this exhibition come out of it and think, wow, that's pretty complex, as well as maybe people who haven't been exposed to the issues start mulling them over and start thinking about them and start looking at galleries 
of African art, but more broadly with a critical eye and asking these questions of other artworks and knowing that they can hold their museums accountable for grappling with these issues and that they can expect that of their public museums because it is their responsibility to think carefully about what they show and how they got the works that they that are in their collection. I think that's a really sophisticated mindset because especially in the last couple of years, American art museums have in so many ways retreated into binaries and defined their metrics of success by a check mark on one side of a line or another in a binary way. And and I think one of the frustrations of someone from the outside who's been engaging with museum practice for a long time is that museums have so much so settled into into a binary address rather than an embrace of complication. So I think that's a really hard thing to do, but I think it's probably harder to do now than it has been maybe at any time in my professional career so or my professional life. So just hearing that is kind of hopeful. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. But yes, I that that is actually probably the short version of my answer is instead of a checkbox on one line or the other, it would be trying to erase the line partially or have them think about why the line was drawn to begin with. Yeah. So I, I love I just love projects that show process. I, I really appreciate them. I think there's a lot of vulnerability to them. And that's a sort of a methodology that I as a curator want to continue applying to my work in the future too. Laura DeBecker, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Nice to talk to you today. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.